First Peter, uh, we're you know, walking through this uh, letter to uh, just to ask God to, to teach us how, how God, do we, do we live your way uh, in a world that so often seems to be going uh, in a lot of other ways? How do we live uh, distinctly uh, for you? First Peter chapter 2, we're going to be uh, kind of unpacking uh, some of that there. But as you're finding that, you know, this is April. Uh, April's coming to a close. May is uh, quickly upon us, which has lots of implications for lots of lives, uh, including the fact that school is starting to wind down. It's the time where uh, projects, uh, papers, final exams will be kicking in. But what's not as well known is that this is a very, very dangerous time to be a grandparent. According to uh, uh, Dan Airely, a professor at Duke University, who wrote the book The Honest Truth About This Honestly, he said that, that there, there is empirical verification that uh, you and I might want to be a- aware of. Hopefully you can't relate to it personally. Airely says, over the years, of course many years of teaching, I've noticed that typically there seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of a semester. It happens mostly in the weeks before final exams and before papers are due. And guess which relative most often dies? Grandma. You're right. You're right. Grandma. It's, it's, it's amazing. Not making this stuff up. Another research project has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are even at a higher risk. Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. It turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens in our day ends up being their grandchildren's GPA. (laughs) The moral of all this is, if you're a grandparent, do not let your grandchild go to college. It may kill you, especially if he or she is academically challenged there. (laughs) We know, we know that grandparents don't like suddenly start dropping off, right, at the the end of, of, of April, May, right? We know that there can be a tendency for all of us in a tight spot to engage in behavior that's less than stellar to move toward dishonesty, even, if that gets us out of a tight spot. Well, one of the things that Peter talks about in this letter is that how you and I respond in tight spots makes a difference. It communicates something about our understanding of God. We are called to live with integrity and with that integrity to have influence. Said another way, every Christian, every follower of Jesus Christ is to be an instrument that publicizes the attributes and the character of God. That part of my job description, your job description, if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, is your life and my life should publicize to a watching world the attributes and the character of God. 
that your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your classmates, maybe somebody that you don't even know about, they are picking up clues. They are forming an understanding of who God is by the way that they see you and I live our life. And because of that, Peter, writing to these followers of Christ, who were many of them undergoing some severe challenge and persecution because they belong to Jesus Christ. These followers of Christ, he was encouraging them to live differently, to live with integrity, and therefore to have influence. And I want you to see just three things, three things in this section of chapter 2 that Peter talks about when it comes to living with integrity and influence. The first one may seem common sense, but it needs to be said nonetheless. Stay away from temptation. Stay away from temptation. Verse 11 there in chapter 2, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He begins by reminding them of some of the things we looked at last week, who they are, who they are in Jesus Christ, because our understanding of our identity goes a long way to influencing how we act and respond to the circumstances of life. And so he just reminds them, in Christ Jesus, we are God's beloved children. We're God's beloved children, beloved. And many of you perhaps came from a family where you you were kind of told, you were indoctrinated sometimes formally, but a lot of times just informally, this is how we behave. This is how our family operates. These are the things our family stands for. These are things that are appropriate. These are things that are inappropriate. This is how we do. This is not how we do. There were things that you said, this is true of us because we share the same name. We belong to the same family. And in much the same way, Peter's just reminding them, you are God's beloved children. And that identity ought to shape how you respond to even the tight spots in life. Not only are we God's beloved children, but there in verse 11, he also reminds us that we are resident aliens. Resident aliens as sojourners and exiles. That this world is, is not the ultimate destination. This is not our citizenship, as the New Testament talked about. Our citizenship is actually in heaven. We belong to a different kingdom. And so we are just here for a while. We are, are living as sojourners, or exiles. We don't form super attachments to this world because we know we are intended. We belong to another place and another kingdom. And that identity impacts the way that we operate and live in this world. And then he reminds us of another picture of who we are, that we are soldiers involved in a spiritual battle. Peter talked to them about the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. When we talk about temptation, we're not talking about just wink, wink, you know, 
that's not so bad. That's just a, a bad thing. It's just kind of you give in the temptation. No, no, no. It's that which is, is a rebellion, not just breaking a rule, but it's breaking God's heart. When, when, I, when I walk in a way contrary to God, it, it's not just about out there, but it's also what it does in here. It wages war against my soul. It keeps me from becoming the man or the woman that God created me to be. And so part of my understanding is that in, in many respects, every day, every day I'm on. Every day that, that I, I am engaged in this spiritual battle for there is an enemy that is waging war against my soul. That he wants to bring into my life those things that damage, those things that distort, and those things that destroy me and the relationships and other people in my life. And so I wage war against that. I am a soldier involved in a spiritual battle. And as you begin to put those pieces together, he reminds us that we are a witness. Then you and I are a witness to a lost world. You know, about keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. To the people that Peter was originally writing to, that they were literally being spoke, spoken against in a wide variety of ways. As the, the, the years would unfold, they would be accused, if you're a Christ follower, you would be accused of being a terrorist. Because Nero pointed to them as, as the cause of the great Roman fire. They were accused of being cannibals because they talked about uh, the bread and the, the cup as the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They, they, they were accused of, of, of damaging the economy, being uh, against uh, progress and, and holding back things, of being atheists because they didn't worship the, the emperor. Uh, they, they were accused as Christ followers of, of inciting slaves to insurrection and damaging the economy and being on the wrong side of all of these more progressive views. And by the way, does not some of that sound strangely familiar even today he said when those accusations come so order your life that the people that know you your family members your co-workers your classmates your 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 friends uh, the people in your neighborhood they're gonna say I hear that stuff but I know him I know her there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between these caricatures and the person that I know. And when you live your life that way, you are a witness powerfully to a watching world. He would go on to say that you and I have been granted incredible freedom in Christ. But that freedom is not a freedom to do as we like, but it's a freedom to do as we ought to do. Skip down with me to verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
You and I, I know that there are folks that claim the name of Christ, and in the name of Christ, they say, well, I, I have this freedom. Yes, we do have a tremendous freedom in Jesus Christ. We have a freedom from the penalty of sin. We have a freedom from the, the power, the domination of sin in our life. Uh, we, we have a freedom from even the fear of death because we know that uh, Christ has conquered death. We have all of these tremendous freedoms, but some folks take that idea of freedom, and they twist it, and they distort it, and they say, well, I'm kind of free to, to live in ways that end up bringing dishonor to God and destruction into lives. And Peter would know nothing of that. Yes, you are free. But that freedom is not so that you can indulge uh, your passions of the flesh, so that you can indulge evil desires, but so that you are free to be the man or the woman that God created you to be, to live in a way that publicizes accurately the attributes and the character of God. And at times that's going to require us to swim upstream, isn't it? To live counterculturally, not just kind of in a weird, wonky way, but, but in an intentional way, submitted to Jesus Christ. The bottom line for Peter is simply that we're either going to be a Bible or a libel for the name of Christ. That the way you and I live, the way you and I exercise our freedom in Christ will either be a Bible that accurately publicizes the characteristics and attributes of Christ or a libel that, that in many respects brings, brings uh, shame, brings dishonor to the name of Jesus Christ. And it begins when we stay away from temptation. But he says another thing in these uh, verses. He says, submit to authority for the Lord's sake. That if you're going to operate in this world, part of operating in a God-honoring way is to submit to authority for the Lord's sake. Let's back up verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter is reminding them there are authorities that God has established. And not all of those authorities operate well. Not all those authorities operate in just ways. Not all of those authorities operate in alignment with how God designed them to. Yes, they're designed to be a a hedge, to hold back, to punish evil, to help and support and celebrate that which is good. But we know it doesn't always operate that way. But how are we to operate even when the authorities aren't always operating the way God designed them to? Well, he uses the word submit, which basically means to align ourselves under. 
And in verse 17 particularly, in those short phrases there, he kind of captures the application of submission. And I just want to kind of lift those up and highlight them for us. Show respect for everybody. Show respect for everybody. He talks about honor everyone. Honor everyone. That we are to show respect for everybody. But not everybody acts in respectful ways. I know. I disagree with who they are or or what they say or how they've done it. Yes. And it is appropriate to disagree. And we still have tremendous freedom in our country and our culture to voice that disagreement. But not to do it in a disrespectful way. To show respect for everybody. But they don't always show respect to me. But as a beloved child, as a representative of another kingdom, as one who has been set free by the power of Christ, show respect. Treat others with respect. And then within the body of Christ, love Christians everywhere. Love Christians everywhere. Even as we show respect to everyone, there is that call to love the brotherhood. To love the brotherhood. Christ said one of the distinguishing marks of those who are followers of Jesus Christ is the way that they love one another. That that in a world that is increasingly at times hostile and petty, where there's divisiveness all around, to be men and women who who treat one another in this community with an extraordinary self-sacrificing kind of love that's distinct that's different that screams out that they belong to somebody else that they're not the same as everybody else in the world one of the reasons why the theme of this year's national day of prayer is unity is because of the power of unity the power of unity among God's people to to proclaim the greatness of our God. And so part of submission is not only showing respect to everyone, but particularly within the body of Christ to operate out of a love, a love that at times isn't easy, a love that is at times uh, inconvenient, right? I, I, I just be honest with you, I, I, I struggle sometimes with what's going on sometimes in, in North American Christianity. And it seems like it's increasingly about a show instead of about really showing love in real messy relationships. You know why some of us stay surface, right? Because if you get deeper, it gets messy. But that's where love takes place, isn't it? It's in the messiness of life. It's in the messiness of relationships. We love in our families. It's not always neat. It's not always a Facebook moment, right? (laughs) But it's in the messiness of relationships that the love of Christ shines forth. To love Christians everywhere. He goes on to talk about honor the government. Honor the government. So he talks about fearing God, honor the emperor. 
You say, wait a minute, are you kidding me? Think about what goes on in in our government. Think about the the, the pettiness. Think about the the special interest. Doesn't mean you don't work to make it better. Doesn't mean you don't uh, lift lift up a, a voice of loyal opposition at times. But it means you, you honor, you honor those that God has put. You honor the structure that God has put into place. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment uh, when it is hard to honor. And then he says in verse 18, shine in the workplace. Shine in the workplace. In this setting, he talks about servants being subject to masters with all respect. Not just to the good ones, not just to those who are gentle, but even to those who are unjust. To to work wherever God has placed you for this season of your life. And for some of you, that is a challenging work environment. I get it. I understand it. But, But to work in such a way that your work shines forth. That your attitude is distinctive. When they're in a world full of grumblers, it doesn't take much to shine forth, right? In a world full of, uh, of gossips, it doesn't take a lot to be distinctive. But to shine in that work environment, even one where, where it might be easy to, to fall into to complaining and bitterness because of the unjust treatment, to shine is those who through their attitude, through their character, through their work, display the glory of God. You say, well, Jeff, this sounds pretty high-minded. But how do I do that when those in some of those positions are less than honorable? How do you honor? How do you shine in an environment that seems just bent on beating you down at times? Well, part of what the New Testament says is honor the position even if you can't honor the personality. Honor the position, not the personality. Now, let me just pause a moment. I, I don't know what your politics are, and for the moment, I don't particularly care because there's enough goofy personalities <laughs> across the political spectrum, is there not? You honor the position, even if at times you can't honor the person the personality in that position. But what, what, what about those moments when, because we're seeing them already and we're going to experience them the more and more, well, what, what about when there becomes this conflict where, where to, 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 to be obedient to God and to, to submit to authority is, is going to bring it into direct conflict? In, the, in those moments, our first allegiance is always to God. The New Testament says our first allegiance is always to God. And like the apostles, when they were commanded, don't don't publicly talk about this name anymore. They ultimately had to decide, I know it can get us thrown in jail. I know it can cost us our life. But you have to decide, is it better to obey God or to obey men? You don't do that arrogantly. Don't do that rudely. There comes that moment when, God, I'm going to honor you and let the chips fall where they may. And what Peter 
reminds us of, by, of in writing to these people is that submission sometimes means being willing to suffer the penalty for doing the right thing. Sometimes that's what submission looks like. I'm going to do the right thing. And it may bring not a relief from suffering, but increased suffering. That's exactly who Peter's writing to here. But remember where he started. He talked about submitting for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. And I'm going to do this unto the Lord. Many centuries ago now, one of those pivotal meetings of the early church in the fourth century, the Nicene Council came together. And part of the record is that of the 300, I think, and 18 people who gathered church leaders from across that section of the world, it said that there were fewer than 12 who showed up fully, wholly complete. Many of them had lost an eye. Others were without a hand. And many more limped because of the torture that they had received because of the name of Jesus Christ. It may very well be that submitting for the Lord's sake may mean being willing to suffer the penalty for doing right. But in that, even in that, we may be publicizing the character and the attributes of God. We submit to authority for the Lord's sake. We stay away from temptation. There's a third thing that that Peter says here, and that is seek God in suffering. Seek God in the midst of that suffering, even if that suffering comes for doing the right thing. Let's pick up his letter there in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, and for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That, that in the midst of that suffering, I, I, I am seeking God. I am seeking to honor God. Nothing perhaps reveals our character like problems and pain, right? It's amazing sometimes what, what comes out under pressure. Someone has said uh, that we're all a whole lot like tea bags, right? You don't really know what's on the inside until you stick them in hot water. <laughs> and once in hot water, kind of what's on that inside of that bag starts to become pretty evident over time, right? And in much the same way, what's really inside my life What's really of importance, what's really of priority, what what really shapes my character shows up when I find myself in hot water. Problems and pain have a way of revealing character. And so Peter was encouraging them. Yes, yes, some of you are suffering unjustly. 
That there's no big reward for enduring suffering that you deserved, right? But some of you may be going through a suffering that is unjust. And the way that you endure that, the way that you walk through that, publicizes the attributes and the character of God. And then he goes on to give us three pictures of Jesus that that were meant to encourage, to encourage their endurance in the midst of suffering. And the first picture of Jesus is the picture of him as our example in this life, as an example in this life. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here's Jesus, Peter says, here's the ultimate example of one who displayed and publicized the attributes and the character of God in the midst of unjust suffering. And like him, follow his example. When reviled, he didn't revile. When threatened, he didn't threaten back. But he entrusted himself. He entrusted himself to the one who ultimately will be the final word and the final judge, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's a great step in maturity when you get to the point of you don't have to keep defending yourself. (laughs) You don't have to keep tweeting every time somebody tweets about you, right? You can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. That that Jesus is our example in that. He's example in this life. But not only that, the second picture is he's our substitute in his death. He's our substitute in his death, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That Jesus Christ did something for me that I could not do for myself. In his death, on that cross as he hung on that tree, he died for me. He was my substitute. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I deserved to die so that he could offer to me freedom. He could offer to me forgiveness. He could offer to me restoration. He could offer to me a pathway to become again the man, the woman that he created us to be. And Jesus Christ did all of that on our behalf. And in the midst of suffering, we look again to the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, and we remind ourselves, He did that for me. He is my substitute. And because of what He did, I, I can live for Him. He died so that I could be free. I died to sin so that I could live to righteousness. And that's the calling upon my life, the calling that I can fulfill 
because Jesus was my substitute. Hear me this morning. For some of you, if you are here this morning, and maybe you said, Jim, I'm not even sure exactly what you meant there. I, 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 I don't, I, what is this Jesus as my substitute? This is what I'm going to ask you to do today. Before you leave this room, would you let us continue this conversation with you? Before you walk away from this place, or maybe you're in this moment and you're, you sense, I need what you're talking about. I need what Jesus Christ did for me. Then what I'm going to ask you to do before you leave this room today is to make your way right over there to the next step area. And there's going to be some folks there at the end of our service, and their, their greatest joy would be to continue this conversation with you. Their greatest joy would be to take just a few more moments and explain to you more fully and completely what Jesus Christ did and why he did it and the difference it can make in your life now and for all eternity. And so I'm just going to encourage you today. You you just saw some of these folks giving testimony of their faith in the waters of baptism. I'm going to encourage you. Just talk. Just talk to somebody about what Jesus Christ did can do for you. He is our example in this life. He is our substitute in his death. But there's one other picture that that Peter gives us here in this section of the letter. He is our watchful shepherd in heaven. Look at verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That with all that's going on in the world, with all that they were experiencing, they had come to the one who was their shepherd, the one who was the overseer, the one who would shepherd their life, sometimes through some challenging days, the one who was sovereign and overseeing all the events that were unfolding. The one who was at work, even in the midst of the chaos. We can entrust ourselves. We have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And so he challenges us. In the midst of a world that so often seems to be going any way but God's way, stay away from temptation. Submit to authority for the Lord's sake. And seek God in the midst of the suffering. But please understand, as we submit and obey, we discover something along the way. We discover that it's not just for the Lord's sake. Yes, God is honored. God is glorified when we rightly represent Him, when we rightly respond to Him. But it's also not just for the sake of others. But yes, as people watch you, as they see Jesus Christ in you, their life is influenced and impacted. But it's not just for the Lord's sake, although it is. It's not just for for the sake of others, although it is for their sake as well. But it is also for for your own sake. It is also for the sake of your own life, your own soul, your own sense of meaning and purpose, that in the midst of temptation, God is not only at work around you, He's at work in you. In the midst of of interacting with authority, God is not only at work in the situation, but He's at work in you. 
In the midst of suffering, God is not just using that to display His qualities to a watching world, but He is also at work in you. And in the midst of all of those things, He is at work that you and I might become like Christ. That you and I might become the men and the women that He created and designed and redeemed us to be. And so as you think about staying away from temptation and submitting to authority and seeking God in suffering, it's not just about others, but it is also about you. Because we have a faithful shepherd and overseer who knows what he's doing. And so Paul would write with confidence to the Roman believers, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose— For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Yes, in the midst of temptation. Yes, in the midst of submission. Yes, in the midst of suffering. God is not just working around you, but he's doing a work in you to create in you the image of Jesus Christ, to complete in you the work to become the man or the woman that he created you to be. In the early 1800s, here in North America, there were a group of Native American Indians that had gathered together in Buffalo Creek, New York, And they had gathered to hear a presentation from a Christian minister, a man by the name of Mr. Crane from the Boston Missionary Society. And after his presentation, the leaders gathered, and a spokesman for the group responded. His name was Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. Among the things that the chief said in response were these words. Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find that it does them good makes them honest and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again of what you have said. Could it be? As powerful as the message of our lips may be, as truthful as it may be, that your family member Your friend, your neighbor, your co-worker, your classmate will not seriously consider the claims of Christ until they see Christ in you. Every follower of Christ is called to publicize with their life the character and the attributes of God.
And when it comes down to it, all of us are either a Bible that does that accurately or a libel that ends up slandering the name and the character of God. How about you? Let's go before the Lord together in prayer, please. Oh, Father, (laughs) thank you. Thank you that for many of us in this room, we can... We can point to some people, maybe members of our own family, maybe someone we worked with, someone that we lived near, someone that was a, a roommate in college, or whatever it may be, someone that they, they lived in such a way that we saw Jesus Christ in them, that their life had integrity, their life had influence because of their walk with you. And Father, we, we, we know they weren't perfect, we, we know they were real human beings with with real struggles, and yet, Father, we we saw you in them. And and Lord, our our desire is that that would be true of us, that, Father, other people would see Jesus Christ in us, that our lives would accurately publicize the attributes and the character of God. So, Father, we just invite you to do what you know best how to do, to shape the character of Christ Jesus in us. Father, use temptation, use authority, use suffering. to shape us, to mold us, to use us for your glory and for your fame. And I'm just going to invite you just to, to be still for a few moments. And...